0: I spent a year um, driving around Texas, interviewing people connected in some way to the death penalty. These were family members of people who had been executed, family members of people who had been murdered in death penalty cases, uh, lawyers. I even interviewed a woman who ran a house in Huntsville, Texas, where people would stay when they were, um, you know, visiting town to witness an execution. So just this incredible range of people, and it made me see The death penalty, which until then had been a very abstract issue for me, one that was very compelling because it was so um, dramatic, it was something people seemed to fight about a lot, but it made it less of an abstraction and more just a, a reality in people's lives and one that touched a stunning number of people, far more than I would have ever expected.
1: In this episode of our Works of Justice series, I had the pleasure of speaking with Maurice Chama, a journalist and staff writer at the Marshall Project whose reporting on the criminal justice system has been published by The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, and Mother Jones, among others. His first book, Let the Lord Sort Them, a study of the rise and fall of the death penalty, was just released. Let the Lord Sort Them is a haunting and absorbing tome of a book that focuses on Texas, Maurice's home state, as a microcosm of our country's preoccupation with the death penalty, a symbol of our tendency towards retribution and punishment. The timing of his book's release also feels uncannily relevant, with Trump having overseen 13 federal executions in the last six months of his presidency, and the first federal executions we've seen in the United States since 2003. This interview also presents a unique opportunity for us, as Maurice has a special connection to Penn's prison and justice writing, Over the past two years, Maurice has served as a mentor for two of our Writing for Justice fellows. The fellowship, which is currently open for applications, commissions writers both with and without justice involvement to write about critical issues connected to mass incarceration. Maurice's expertise was first leveraged in a mentor role working with Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, a 2018 Writing for Justice fellow whose project painfully details his own personal experience on Texas death row. In this interview, in addition to sharing his own professional and writing trajectories through and beyond the book, Maurice spoke in depth about his experience as a Writing for Justice mentor and about how his relationship with Thomas Whitaker impacted his own work. After listening, if you're interested in applying to the Writing for Justice Fellowship, we encourage you to visit pen.org writing justice for more information. I'm Francis Cohan, Pen America's Prison and Justice Writing Fellow And thank you for listening. First, I want to welcome you and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's really an absolute pleasure. So first, I just want to sort of ask, you know, how is everything? How does it feel to have a book out in the world? And what has that experience been like during a pandemic?
0: It's actually been really thrilling and exciting. And I don't know what it's like to publish a book not in a pandemic. This is my first one. I had been prepared for, you know, a lot of traveling or bookstore events. And now, of course, everything I've done is at home. And, you know, on different days, I'll sort of jump between different events and different kinds of interviews. And really it feels very exciting to sort of have everyone I've ever known kind of send me an email or give me a call and sort of cheer me on. Um, So it's been good, and it's also broken up uh, the pandemic experience a little bit insofar as uh, the days don't feel all the same the way that they used to. There's a lot more excitement with jumping between these different book events. So um, generally, it's been good. I live in Austin, Texas, and uh, Texas has not handled the pandemic necessarily very well compared to other states. Uh, So it seems like we're going to be inside for the foreseeable future. But other than that, it also has made the book's release feel like it's actually reaching a bigger audience in certain ways because people can engage with the book without me having to, you know, fly to a city to do a book event. There's an ability to, uh, you know, have it be over Zoom. And so I'm doing panels of people who maybe live very far from me. And um, that's really exciting, too.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It was, I mean, great on my end, because I just got it shipped to me and I got to read it. So that was awesome. So I'm curious, tell me and listeners a bit about your professional story. What drew you to the field of criminal justice and specifically to interacting with this field as a journalist? And then, sort of tagging onto that question, how did you begin reporting specifically on the death penalty? And what about your work or experience research led you to the idea for a book?
0: Sure. So, I first got interested in the death penalty even before I was a journalist. I finished college and moved back to Austin, which is where I was from. I was mainly a musician at the time and was casting about for what I wanted to do with my life. And my first job after college was with the Texas After Violence Project, which is a small nonprofit based in Austin, Texas, that does oral history research on the death penalty and state violence and sort of these issues Um, It had been founded by a longtime defense attorney named Walter Long. And at the time I came in, it was young, and I spent a year um, driving around Texas interviewing people connected in some way to the death penalty. These were family members of people who had been executed, family members of people who had been murdered in death penalty cases. Uh, lawyers. I even interviewed a woman who ran a house in Huntsville, Texas, where people would stay when they were, um, you know, visiting town to witness an execution. So just this incredible range of people. And it made me see The death penalty, which until then had been a very abstract issue for me, one that was very compelling because it was so um, dramatic, it was something people seemed to fight about a lot, but it made it less of an abstraction and more just a, a reality in people's lives and one that touched a stunning number of people far more than I would have ever expected. So I spent that year doing those interviews, transcribing them, working with the University of Texas to archive them. There was this whole idea that we were building a kind of archive for posterity. That's why it's called the Texas After Violence Project, sort of building towards a world in which we can understand better the causes of violence, how to prevent it, how it touches people's lives. And at the same time, I was realizing that personal storytelling was a way for people who knew nothing about a particular public policy area, whether criminal justice or anything else, to get to know the way these policies really affect people's lives. And it was a way into understanding policy, understanding the world around us um, that was very intimate. Like you could reach a lot of people at one time to sort of have a collective conversation about these really difficult questions. And that appealed to me, you know, more than approaching it as an academic or an anthropologist or, you know, these other ways that maybe one can get into um, scholarly work about these questions. And, you know, I read magazines, I was reading Texas Monthly and The New Yorker, and these were the things I would just read for fun. And I realized, wait a minute, journalists are are the ones who get to kind of skip from subject to subject and learn a ton about them and then communicate with a wide audience about what they've learned and guide the collective conversation we're all having about things like the death penalty and criminal justice. So I decided to become a journalist and uh, I interned at a few different you know, small news outlets. I didn't get a journalism degree, but there were a few opportunities in, in Texas and also in Egypt where I lived for a little while to just sort of intern at newspapers and get to know how you do this work. And because I already knew a little bit about the death penalty, having worked at the Texas After Violence Project, just that little bit of extra knowledge about the law, about the politics of it meant that I was realizing that I could pitch stories about death penalty cases that were a little more unique and that might be interesting to editors. So I was interning for about a year at the Texas Tribune, which is a a nonprofit here in Austin, and I was finding about cases of people who were maybe going to be executed. I was talking to their lawyers, learning about the issues in those cases, and then thinking, oh, in addition to writing about this one man who's facing the death penalty, who's facing an execution, I can also explain that, for example, his interrogation when he was first interrogated for the crime was never recorded. And so if he was interrogated in such a way that he gave a false confession and he's really innocent of this crime, we don't know. And turns out the Texas legislature is debating a bill that would require interrogation recording in all cases. And so I could match up the case to this public policy question and do a story. And so I was feeling my way out, but I got more and more immersed in journalism and at every step I was continually returning to death penalty cases and also starting to drift out of that into the criminal justice system more widely because obviously hundreds of thousands of people in the prison system are not under a death sentence. Uh, Fast forward a few years, you get to 2014, and criminal justice, which I had been immersing myself in, kind of explodes nationally as a subject of concern. This is when Michael Brown is killed in Missouri. Freddie Gray is killed by police in Baltimore. There's this debate about police brutality and, and deaths. And in that moment, it feels like there's just a kind of random luck, at least for me, in terms of career that I'm interested in a subject that now suddenly everybody else is also interested in, in a broad way. And around that time, The Marshall Project was founded. The Marshall Project is where I work now. We're a nonprofit news outlet that covers the criminal justice system. It was created even before Michael Brown and Freddie Gray, but certainly I think got a boost in uh, awareness from the big protests that were happening at the time. and. I've been at the Marshall Project ever since, and while working there, doing stories, I continued to kind of revisit the death penalty, continue to broaden out and cover trends as opposed to individual cases. I did a story there about how the death penalty is very expensive, for example, and this was a story that touched on, you know, a dozen cases as opposed to just one. And uh, started to realize in those early days at the Marshall Project that I kind of knew enough. I'd encountered enough cases that I could see the big picture, and I could see that Americans had come to embrace the death penalty. About you know, forty years ago, there had been a big rise in in capital punishment in terms of death sentences and executions, and then things reached a peak around the year two thousand, and they had been falling ever since. And I started to see that you could do a book that was about that big picture embrace. But going all the way back to that Texas After Violence Project experience, I also saw that you could tell that story through the individual experiences of people. So this is all a very long-winded way of kind of describing the path to the book, but at every turn, everything's kind of been interconnected.
1: Thank you so much. That was awesome. And I'm a big fan of the Marshall Project. So again, this is sort of an honor for me to be interviewing you. But you touched upon this in your answer, and you talk a lot about this in the book. You talk about how the death penalty is sort of this symbol of our country's overarching tendency towards retribution and punishment. To quote you, it makes very long prison sentences appear lenient by comparison. But then you also talked about how initially for you and for many, the death penalty can sort of be a standalone and aloof issue. So my question is, how does addressing the death penalty impact other areas of reform? For example, how do you think that the abolition of capital punishment um, might quicken efforts for sentence reduction or other types of sentencing reform?
0: It's a really uh, great question, and you know, when I first was conceiving of the book, I wanted it to speak to the larger criminal justice system. I didn't want it to feel like it was about this one punishment in this one state. You know, the book focuses on Texas, and the Texas death penalty can feel very sort of exotic to somebody living in New York or Idaho. You know, places that maybe don't have the death penalty or don't have it used as often. Texas can just seem like this outlier, but Texas played this role in American criminal justice where we were the symbol of a punitive approach to crime. There was a review of my book where they said that Texas is to America what America is to the rest of the world. You know, the sort of place that we look to for these impulses or one part of our impulses and Texas becomes a symbol for a really harsh punitive approach to crime. Now, as the death penalty has disappeared, it's been replaced by life without parole Uh, you know, sentences where people are sent to prison for the rest of their lives. And one kind of, in some ways ironic and in some ways kind of tragic aspect of the decline of the death penalty is that there are far more life without parole sentences now than there ever were death sentences. Far more people who will die in prison under what, you know, many lawyers call a virtual death sentence than people who ever got a real death sentence. And I think that that's important to highlight because... You know, it would be a shame if Americans turned away from the death penalty, but didn't turn away from the sort of harsh, or, or at least I'm not sort of prescribing what we should do, but didn't at least question the sort of harsh retributive philosophy that led us to the death penalty, to that embrace. And one way you're seeing lawyers in particular, but also advocates and writers try to chip away at that even beyond the death penalty is through something called mitigation. So in my book, I tell a handful of stories about cases where somebody committed a really atrocious crime and was sort of on a conveyor belt to death row because they committed that crime in Houston or a place that really you know, celebrated capital punishment. And lawyers managed to convince a jury in, in that place to spare this person's life because they did really, really rich Research on their whole past. I mean, in this one case of a a man named Juan Quintero who murdered a police officer in Houston, uh, he was undocumented. It was assumed, I think, in legal circles that he was going to get the death penalty. And his lawyer went to Mexico and had a team interview everybody he'd ever gone to school with in Mexico and got all of his school and hospital records and had translators working on this and built a portrait of his life story, a portrait of all the little moments in his life where, you know, he did his best, but the circumstances sort of shaped him in one way, whether that was a brain injury or an addiction to alcohol, and that the person who committed this murder, you know, that's not all there is to say about him. You know, he was an innocent child at one time, he's capable of redemption now in the present, and uh, we should spare his life so he can be kind of a full human. And that's not to say that he shouldn't go to prison. She wasn't trying to convince the jury of that. She was just trying to convince them to spare his life. And the lawyer in this case cheated and, and he is still in prison now. And I saw in that story and many similar ones about you know the death penalty being sort of beaten at trial, an approach that doesn't have to be limited to the death penalty. Of course, it's expensive to mount one of these big investigations. You know, you probably couldn't see that happening for every murder, not to speak of every kind of armed robbery, right? But you can see the way that looking into the life circumstances of people, the big picture swings of history and policy that shaped their lives, the failure to treat mental health problems, the addiction issues, um, brain injuries, sort of all of these different things can shape someone's life on the path to a crime. And if society spends more time learning those stories and trying to understand that, they might see people as more capable of redemption and rehabilitation and the outcome of that can be, at least in individual cases, you know, shorter prison sentences or prison sentences that don't send them away for the rest of their lives that say, This person did something awful, we don't want them on the streets tomorrow, but we also don't want to completely close the door to the idea that they can find, you know, mercy and redemption and rehabilitation in prison.
1: Thank you so much. And so earlier you talked about, you know, your work in sort of more local journalism, the Texas Tribune, and then the Marshall Project, which is obviously more national. And you also, in your book, touch upon the impact of local and national news on public sentiment around the death penalty. So how do you think that the decline of local news and journalism, which is really a hot topic right now because it's been exacerbated by COVID-19, how do you think that decline will affect the trajectory of the death penalty and of public sentiment towards it?
0: So I think that the decline of newspapers sort of throughout the country is generally just bad for our, our collective conversation about public policy in criminal justice, the death penalty, everything else, because You know, there's less information about individual cases, about individual situations that allow people to really kind of think through what has happened in the world and and their biases and how to respond, you know, to these um, local news events. I mean, at a national organization like the Marshall Project or even at a statewide organization like the Texas Tribune. You know, unless you have hundreds of reporters, I mean, there's just so much you can't cover. And at a national organization, we're often looking for a particular state or a particular case that illustrates a national theme and maybe encourages people to go learn about what's happening in their communities. I wrote a story last year about a particularly horrible jail where lots of people were dying and being abused by guards and uh, neglected This was in Missouri, and the headline of the article was, Your Local Jail May Be a House of Horrors. And the suggestion of the article was very much that people should go try to learn about what's happening in their communities. But I also realized that for many people, it's not easy to do if there's no local paper reporting on what's happening. You know, I've also seen in the Austin American Statesman, which was my local newspaper, there's been a turn where 20 years ago... Newspapers maybe just sort of told the story that prosecutors and police wanted to tell about somebody who'd been arrested and generally portray them as a monster who deserves a long prison sentence. You're starting to see more local journalism do the opposite and try to kind of humanize the defendant, talk to the defense lawyers, you know, give a more rounded, holistic view of who they are. And I'm, I'm seeing that in The Statesman and other local papers. But at the same time, I'm also seeing these papers close fewer reporters, and I've talked to reporters at a lot of papers who would love to do more in-depth, sort of rounded coverage of criminal cases, but just don't have the time. And so you can see how if newspapers weren't in such decline, the general trend towards criminal justice reform would be shaping that coverage in a richer way. But uh, there's only so many hours in a day and there's not enough money to pay enough reporters to actually do that work. And so you kind of wonder what great writing and coverage and documentation of these cases could we be getting if
1: the support was there. Thank you. Yeah, it's sort of frightening to think about the decline of local journalism like that. Um, You talked about this again earlier in terms of sort of the diversity and span of interviews and perspectives you got with your TAVP work. Um, And I think one of the most striking and moving parts of your book is along the same lines, is how you sort of illuminate and validate the many different actors within the justice system. You know, you have the victim, the defense attorney, perpetrator, etc. cetera. And you speak particularly about the nuanced and diverse experiences of victims and their reaction to the death penalty. So can you share with our listeners a few of these reactions that most surprised or moved you? And then just more broadly, how do we include the victims and all of their complexity and perspectives and reactions in the process of justice?
0: So victims play a really interesting role in the criminal justice system because, you know, for many years, the system would say, you know, that in any particular case, it was the state of Texas versus so-and-so, the state of New York versus so-and-so. And And the victims didn't technically have a role in that. It was the state that was prosecuting and trying to punish uh, people who committed crimes, no matter who the victim was. In the 80s and 90s, there was a rise of what's called the Victims' Rights Movement. And this was victims who kind of organized politically generally around more punitive criminal justice policies generally around sending people to prison for longer they tended to be supportive of the death penalty and they held a lot of sway if you were running for mayor or city council member in a city like houston or philadelphia you really needed the victims rights community in that town to support you and the way you got them to support you was by saying i'm going to use the death penalty more often And that was the assumption I had about the world of victims going into the book research you know early on I did interview a woman who witnessed an execution of a man who had killed um, her brother and sister. And she said that it was an incredibly healing experience for her and her parents that she wouldn't have you know traded it and she feels generally good having witnessed it that you know, comported with, I think, my expectations. But then as I got deeper into the research, I realized that it wasn't monolithic and that he was, if anything, maybe an exception. And many, many family members of victims, um, I should step back and say, I don't think she's an exception. I think many people do profess to get something out of witnessing an execution. But at the same time, there were many people who felt jerked around in one way or another, whether that was because Death penalty cases, by their very nature, take many years and involve a lot of appeals and sort of we as a society have decided that nobody should be executed without having a lawyer who can really investigate their case and bring claims to the courts about, you know, whether this person might be innocent or was sentenced unjustly for one reason or another. And we want a system that sort of separates the innocent from the guilty and separates those who really deserve, however you define it. A punishment from those who don't but what that creates is uh, a lot of years going by and a lot of twists and turns in the case where somebody's sentence is overturned and they have to be retried and all of this continually re-traumatizes the victim family members who have to go from feeling like their case is resolved to feeling like it's not resolved and uh, like they have to check the newspaper every day on the off chance that the man who killed their loved one is going to be let out of prison. This is the sort of thoughts that go through their minds because they're traumatized from this horrible loss that they've suffered, right? This is, of course, I'm describing cases of murder where it's the family members left behind by a murder, but this is also true for a victim of sexual assault or robbery who, you know, is traumatized by what they've been through. And I started to also find victim family members who, as a result of all of that, had come to feel like they opposed the death penalty because there's no way out of that situation. It ultimately robbed them of a kind of um, peace and closure and wholeness because the case was constantly back in the news. The person who committed the crime was himself constantly in the news and almost treated like it was their name in the newspapers, not the family member who had been murdered. And as victim family members started to tell prosecutors, you know, we don't want the death penalty. There were really heartbreaking cases where the prosecutors, um, having once been supportive of them and in touch with them, you know, do a 180 and stop talking to them, don't tell them about court dates. And these family members having been traumatized by the crime now are traumatized by feeling like they're just a political pawn of a prosecutor and they're only worth the time of day if they comport to what the prosecutors want them to do, right? So this is all to say through the research I found this incredible variety and it made me realize that there's just nothing monolithic about how people respond to having their world kind of ripped apart by a crime in this way. And we shouldn't, as the public, as elected officials, presume to know what they want. And getting uh, our arms around what they want is a, a slow and difficult process that we're Only, I think, in an early stage as a country of really thinking about in a rich way. So there are restorative justice programs that think about how to make the victim um, whole in some sense. You know, there are really interesting cases where they meet the person who committed the crime and talk about what happened. And they want to sort of encounter the remorse that that person has or know that that person has remorse i have heard that in other countries sometimes the victim will have their own lawyer who's separate from the prosecutor and it kind of frees the prosecutor to pursue what they think justice is outside of uh what the victim wants but the victim actually still gets their own representative in the process and so you can see a kind of fairness to that even if the outcome isn't what the victim wants that they at least have their voice heard in a more formal and um, powerful way so I, i think As a country, one thing I've learned is that we profess to be for victims, but we have really limited sort of the ways in which they can express their needs. And we are still, I think, in an early phase of getting to a point where they're really heard in the kind of full way they deserve to be.
1: Thank you. Um, And quickly, I'm just going to pivot to exploring your interaction with our program, uh, our Prison and Justice Writing at PEN America, and just to give some context for listeners. Right now, we have applications open for our Writing for Justice Fellowship, which commissions writers both with and without justice involvement to write about critical issues connected to mass incarceration. So just first, as a writer in this field yourself, can you offer us any insight on the kind of power you think writers have to influence the larger criminal justice debate and to make change in the field? And then specifically, how did you think about your book's own impact as you were writing it? And did you make any creative choices specifically tailored to your audience in mind?
0: So when I would tell people that I was working on this book, people who I maybe met at a party or you know, people who had no connection to criminal justice or the death penalty, one of the reactions I got more than any other was, oh, have you seen the movie Just Mercy? Uh, Have you read the book Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson, right? Which is this incredible book and film about his career as a defense lawyer in death penalty cases. And the primary narrative is about his efforts to free an innocent man from death row in Alabama. And what I realized from that book's fame was that we can hear statistics all day, but it's not until some story kind of gets lodged in our head that we come to care about some of these issues and think about them in a richer way. And it's the storytelling that gets us there that takes the kind of messiness of the world, the fact that the world is just full of facts and kind of shapes those facts into a clear line of this happened and then this happened. And this is the meaning of that string of chain reactions and events in the world. Um, You know, how police did their job in a case, how the defense lawyers did their job in a case, what stories got told in the courtroom. And another example that comes from the world of journalism is that, you know, there had been Advocates calling for the closure of Rikers Island, the jail system in New York City for many, many years, but many people in advocacy and political circles told me that really what got the conversation about actually closing Rikers really going was Uh, The story of Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was this young man who was in solitary for a great amount of time at Rikers and came out and sadly took his life several years later and was just terribly traumatized as a teenager, basically, by um, his time in Rikers Island. And I saw also in that story how there was an awareness that Rikers had problems. There was an awareness that people were coming out of that jail sort of worse than they went in. But it was this one particularly compelling story about a kid who steals a backpack. Uh, that appeared in The New Yorker that motivated a lot of political change. And so that's where I see the value of storytelling. But, you know, the person who does that storytelling can vary. So in my own book, I talk about lawyers a lot because they're the ones who often create these narratives, who, who do all this research and investigation and present to the jury a narrative. If you're a prosecutor, that's a narrative of this person, you know, uh, started committing crimes as a teenager and then got worse and worse and worse. And now he's 30 and he committed a terrible murder and he should get the death penalty. The defense narrative is something more along the lines of, you know, this innocent child grew up and had, you know, a tremendous amount of misfortune and problems in their life and dysfunction in their family. and. Uh, struggled through life and eventually got to this point where they committed this really horrible crime but um, you know they want to seek redemption now I mean I'm painting with broad strokes but these are the kinds of narratives you get and those are the narratives that are compelling to members of the jury and then eventually members of the public when they encounter these narratives through um, you know journalism but I also think that fiction writers poets playwrights it's not just journalists that shape these stories you know it's all of these people who, take the kind of raw experience of the world, the raw data of either their own personal experience or the research that they've done and craft it into, you know, uh, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, a story that sticks in people's minds and is the thing that makes them kind of obsessively interested in this subject. I also, I want to say that, you know, just as prosecutors and defense lawyers can kind of have two different versions of the same story, this sort of thing is not value-free in the sense that, you know, there used to be a whole kind of genre of true crime writing that would, much like prosecutorial narratives, you know, make the murderers into these sort of flat one-dimensional villains. I often think of like superhero movies or something where, you know, the villain is sort of an unredeemable bad guy who we can feel okay about killing because, you know, there's nothing redeemable about them. And... So I think the trick for us as storytellers is to be really honest with ourselves and really careful and to sort of do the research so that we can tell a three-dimensional story that doesn't kind of flatten any of the participants.
1: And to dive more deeply sort of into your specific connection with Penn, you have been a Writing for Justice mentor for the past two years for Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, who's a fellow and his project is centered in writing about his own experience on Texas death row. So can you speak a bit about how you worked with Thomas's writing through this role as a mentor? And I'm also curious if your relationship with Thomas impacted your own work or thinking in the field and maybe even the book.
0: Absolutely, it did. Um, I came to know Thomas when I was fairly far into the writing of the book, into the research. and. You know, the Writing for Justice Fellowship pairs writing mentors like myself with people who are writing about the system, many of whom have direct experience. And many of these people with direct experience are now out of prison so they can talk on the phone or meet in person with the mentor. But for Thomas's case, and also another fellow in Washington State that I also worked with, you know, these were men who were currently in prison and that really restricted our ability to communicate. It was uh, very difficult if impossible to get on the phone with them and so we were primarily communicating through letters and that meant that you know things took a very long time to get back and forth we sometimes even had to use coded language because he was concerned about um, the sensors at the prison intercepting and maybe blocking a letter in either direction from going through or if not blocking it you know sitting on it for so long that the advice is moot by the time he actually gets the letter from me I was able to meet him in person one time. I was able to visit him. Uh, he's no longer on death row. He's in a general population prison, and I was able to go spend a few hours with him, speaking to him as a visitor. Uh, it was an interesting experience for me because I had only ever entered prisons as, as a formal journalist, you know, doing an interview, whereas this was, uh, I was on his list of essentially, you know, family members and friends and was going in and was treated by the guards um, a lot less nicely because they didn't realize that I was uh, a journalist and if they knew I was writing about the prison, I think that they maybe would have been on better behavior, but there was a kind of gruffness and a kind of like, you don't matter feeling that I felt you know, comparatively as I went to visit Thomas. So we spoke for a few hours and had these really rich conversations, at least I found them very rich, about uh how to present his story because thomas was a phenomenal writer um and like he's so good at just you know spinning a yarn where you get kind of sucked into the series of events as he tells them he's really good at using dialogue at remembering what people said at describing people Uh, and often he's writing about the texas death penalty about his own experience being convicted of murder himself of i mean you know the crime that he was convicted of was really horrific. It was in the news. And so he understands the gravity of all of that, but he also has a sense of humor because that's just a human thing to have and everybody has one. And no matter how dark your circumstances, your environment, your life experiences, you know, having the ability to find humor in little moments is just such a sort of human thing to do. And he could get that humor into his writing, which I found really tremendous. So in terms of the conversations with him, there was a lot of you know how do you present uh your life story how do you present the crime that you committed because as a writer you have a tremendous power on the page but you also know at least in this day and age that a reader who sees your name at the top of an essay you know if it's published in a literary magazine and if they want to um go google you and find out what you know 48 hours or whatever crime television show or or newspaper said about your crime, and it might be a pretty unflattering image, and it might make people say, oh, not this guy. You know, we're speaking in early February, and I mean, just today, I haven't spent that much time on it, but I saw that there was a big sort of explosion of anger around um, Poetry Magazine's decision to publish a man who had been convicted of a really egregious sexual crimes against children, right, which is a crime that really, um, really makes people deeply uncomfortable to talk about and triggers a lot of, you know, trauma for victims of abuse who maybe encounter this man's name in a poetry magazine. These are hard conversations. They're not easy to have. And Google and Twitter in some ways help, but they also raise the temperature of everything, right? And I knew that you know, when Thomas was going to be published, that there would be people who would be unforgiving and who would Google him and who would um, maybe say, this man's a monster. Why are we giving him a platform? And I think that a lot of value could come from Thomas talking through what happened and his experience. and, and, And maybe he decides not to, but just those are decisions to make as a writer. And sort of the goal, I think, of a writing mentor is just to increase the number of individual decisions that a writer makes that are thought through, basically. you know the actual outcome of that decision can vary depending on the writer, but just the idea that you sort of thought about it for a few minutes. When it came to my own work, I mean at a practical level, Thomas was really helpful in verifying some aspects of what life is like on death row. There were times where somebody told me something about death row and I thought, you know that sounds like it could be true, but I just you know I don't really know I'm taking a man's word for it. and so then I would ask Thomas and he would say oh yeah, that's absolutely true and here's some proof. So just as a reporter, I found Thomas um, to be a really helpful source to talk about Death Row as somebody who had been there, lived there for many years, and had now left. He knew many of the men that I was writing about personally and could talk about them. Also, going back to what I said before about his skill as a writer, I think the humor in his writing was inspiring to me. I realized that some of these really heavy, dark you know, sections of the book where I'm talking about Death Row or... You know, a trial or a murder. You want to be dignified in the way that you talk about some of this stuff, write about it, but you also know that humor is just part of the human experience, that there's a little silliness that can creep into even the darkest moments, and that if you can, in a dignified way, weave that into your writing a little bit, it maybe makes the reader uh, more likely to be surprised and a little excited and to keep going for that reason. So I was inspired by just Thomas's skill with humorous descriptions of people that he met and humorous descriptions of like the discombobulated nature of bureaucracy, even when death is on the table. You know, there were times where I would laugh reading Thomas's writing and I thought, oh, like, you know, maybe I can kind of get a little of that sense of, of levity into my own writing here and there as a way of kind of propelling the reader forward and keeping just a range of emotions in what is primarily a very depressing book and subject.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that was actually something that stood out to me when I was reading. I think your point about just the innate humanity and humor is so true, and I definitely appreciated that in the book. And then to sort of look forward, in your epilogue, you mentioned Trump's appointment of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And even after, you know, the book is put out, the arrival of Amy Coney Barrett has further solidified the court's conservative majority. But then on the other hand, we have Biden, who ran and won on the most progressive criminal justice platform we've seen. So how do you think this tension between Biden's progressive agenda and the newly conservative Supreme Court will play out in legislative and judicial arenas in the coming months and years, particularly in terms of the death penalty and other sentencing issues?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I first wrote a proposal and went to publishers to try to make this book happen uh, about five years ago. And at the time, Trump was running for president. But at least in these publishing circles, there was an assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so often people asked about the book, what do you expect to happen under President Hillary Clinton, right? It's a naive time in early 2016. And there was a moment back then when it seemed like perhaps the Supreme Court would ruled that the death penalty violated the Constitution. There was five members of the court where there was at least some chance that they might come to that decision together. And defense lawyers were debating, you know, what case do we bring to the court? How do we bring the case? Um, And then Trump was elected and Trump has completely reshaped the Supreme Court. He's had three appointments, all conservatives who have shown that they support the death penalty, broadly speaking and are unlikely to do something big and dramatic. I mean, they, they still will actually rule in both directions. There are cases where even you know, Neil Gorsuch has ruled in favor of death row prisoners on individual small issues, but the big swing is sort of over. And so now the conversation has shifted away from the courts and the Supreme Court to Congress. Congress is now considering a bill that would abolish the federal death penalty. This is something that President Biden promised on the campaign trail. You have members of Congress like Ayanna Pressley and Dick Durbin promoting uh, the abolition of the federal death penalty. But even if that were to pass, there's no guarantee that it would, the death penalty would not disappear because it's still primarily a state thing. And under Biden, it's pretty unlikely that we'll see any more federal executions. There's a question of how much he'll do, but it appears that there's no likelihood of him pursuing executions And because Biden is is not pursuing these executions, it means that all the executions are going to be happening in Texas, in Alabama, in Florida, in these states that still maintain the punishment. And these state legislators are not likely to abolish the death penalty anytime soon. Although just today, February 3rd, Virginia's state Senate passed a bill to abolish the death penalty and virginia seems on the cusp of doing this and it would be the first southern state so that could offer a sort of template to opponents of the death penalty in texas and oklahoma and other states in the south to at least make a push in their legislatures i don't know that any of that would be especially successful but i think that you're going to see this tension basically play out over the next few years you're going to see the supreme court essentially allow executions to happen you're going to see joe biden maybe do something dramatic, maybe commute some death sentences, um, at the very least not pursue executions. And he has a choice of how far he goes, and, and he could also incentivize states. He said that he's interested in potentially sort of tying federal money, for example, to states promising to give better defense for uh, death row prisoners. Or you know, There's various ways he could try to incentivize them. And you're gonna see these dynamics play out over the next few years. Um, but I also think that the long-term trajectory that I document in the book, now that Trump is gone, now that Trump is not pursuing executions, you know, is sort of more true than ever. There's gonna be this long downswing where there's fewer and fewer executions every year, fewer and fewer death sentences. I think it would take a lot sort of culturally and politically for us to turn back towards the death penalty in a big way. Um, And then the last point, I think there's a bit of an irony in the fact that by embracing the death penalty so strongly, Trump kind of raised its place on the agenda. I think the death penalty was disappearing in relevance year by year. Most people didn't spend much time thinking about it. If Trump was not pursuing executions, it's hard for me to imagine how much of a priority it would be for Congress now. And so in a way, he's kind of ironically paved the way for the end of the death penalty. And you know, as with anything historical, you can never predict the way these things are gonna go, and the death penalty is no different.
1: Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to speak with me today. I think you've left me and our listeners with a lot to think about, a lot of really awesome answers and questions. Yeah, just thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Really nice to be here.
1: This podcast episode was written, hosted, and produced by myself with guidance and support from Prison and Justice Writing Director, Kate Meisner and Manager, Robbie Pollock, and from Senior Director of Communications and Marketing, Stephen Fee. Thank you for listening. I encourage you all, if able, to purchase a copy of Maurice's new book, Let the Lord Sort Them. Moving, informative, thought-provoking, and timely, it is a must-read.